Hey guys, we just wanted to let you know that we're going to be discussing some sensitive subjects in this week's episode. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the subjects of suicide and homicide and the confusion between the two. So if that is something you are uncomfortable with, proceed with caution. If you are someone suffering from depression or have any ideas of suicide, I do want to give you the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Now back to the show. This is Robert Chauncey from the Tunnels Podcast. When I'm not investigating a mysterious urban legend that can be found underneath my small Georgia town of Griffin, I run the Haunted Theater on Hill Street. It's a small, non-profit haunted house. Since high school, I've either worked in or helped create one haunted house or another every year. 21 years later, they are still a huge passion of mine. Like most things, I guess haunted houses come with their own set of legends or stories that get passed from one haunt to the next. When I first got started as just a kid in high school, we were stressed safety first, because there are a lot of ways you can get hurt inside a haunted house if you're not careful. I was told the story about another kid who didn't listen. This kid didn't play a big monster or a faceless creature, he was just playing a man. A man that had been pushed to his brink. After seeing all the unspeakable horrors that a haunted house had to offer, he would yell and scream at the top of his lungs at the paying customers, his words of warning, before finally telling them that it was too late for them. And it was too late for him as well. This was where he would put a noose around his neck and drop off a small platform, his feet dangling off the floor as the lights go out, plunging the patrons into pitch black, resulting in the desired result of jumps and screams until they were ushered into the next room. When all was quiet, the kid would open his eyes and swing on the harness that was actually holding him up until he was able to reach the platform again and get ready for the next group, the noose never actually holding any weight on it at all. That was how it was supposed to go. Every time. All the time. But it didn't. You see, the kid had to go to the bathroom, but he was pretty sure he could make it back before the next group came by. So he unhooked himself from the harness and ran to the bathroom. When he came back, he heard the next group only a few rooms before his. He rushed back into a scene, grabbed the harness, jumped back up the platform, and hooked it back on, just as the group came in. Once again, he did his lines and dropped off the platform. But this is when things changed, because he didn't make sure the harness was fully secured, and the clip slid right off. The noose did what it was meant to do all along, and wrapped tightly around his neck. His eyes bulged, his feet kicked, his face started turning blue. As the lights went off, and the customers moved into the next scene, they were amazed at how realistic his body was. Almost like it was a real dead body hanging there. So, so lifelike. It took four groups to pass by before someone realized that something had went horribly wrong. By that time, it was too late to do anything. They shut the haunt down after that, and they never opened another one. Have you heard the story <laughs> The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales. Haunted spots and twilight superstitions. Tonight's and I were goodies are given to ghouls, goblins, and ghosts. And for every trick-or-treater and non-trick-or-treater alike. For those with a kid or the monster and all of us. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest. And the living and the dead could come in. Time where the dead can come alive again. The dead is nothing we have to be afraid of. it's just a story hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake and i'm sam and we're here to tell you a spooky halloween story 
Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables, tricks and treats say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, guys. We do want to thank everybody for joining us. You know, we've had some great growth over the last few months. and welcome all of our new listeners. It's going to be a long, strange trip, ladies and gentlemen. You might want to buckle up. We promise it'll be fun. You're not going to need an adult. We promise. I think a few people have reached out to us suggesting ideas for stories, such as Isaac Hamilton. We've got some great reviewers, such as Gore Kitten and Omnia Vincent Tamor. We're guessing there. Maybe we're, so. we're edumacatingly guessing at your name. Sure. So someone on Goodreads has been talking about us, and that's Latasha, and we just want to say we know what you're up to, and we like it. And it is that spooky time of year, Halloween, and we do want to encourage all of you, as we always do, to share some of your stories and urban legends that you grew up with, and especially right now, maybe some of your Halloween stories. Right, and we're going to kind of open the parameters of our show, if we could open them any more than we already have, and really like encourage you to send in any kind of ghost stories, any time of like the faucet turned on by itself. We want to hear about it. We need to hear about it. Tell us about it. We believe you. We do. We want to. Although we'll probably just kind of debunk things with kind of what we do, but sure. No, I, you were the scully to my molder, and I'm going to take you down one day. <laughs> We've been called Mythbusters like a thousand times. <laughs> You myth bust. I wax poetic. Is that what you're doing? No. <laughs> so you can reach out to us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod through our email, Just a Story Pod at gmail.com. Or you can call the Urban Legend Hotline at 512 222 3375. And my phone will ring and it will be red and it will look like Adam West Batman. But just enough where our phone actually doesn't ring, it's just a voicemail. Where you can leave messages. Yes, that's true. And Google Voice is going to cut you off after three minutes. But if you have more to say, you just call back as many times as you need to till you're done with your story. Speaking of stories. Stories, you say. Today we are going over a very classic urban legend. That's true. And it's one that is called the Halloween Hanging. Because alliteration is fun. And this is a legend, as you heard, at the top of the show, and that great story was brought to us by Robert Chauncey, who does a fun podcast, a kind of creepy audio drama called The Tunnels, that I highly suggest. Fantastic. But this is a story and legend that's been around for a while. It's hard to pin when it came about, because it is one of those stories that is very much... Like Law and Order and many other of your favorite shares. Ripped from the headlines. Ripped from the headlines. Bum bum. Because this story is really not a story. Well, not a fictional story. Not just a story. Yeah, we're kind of starting off early with this. It's not just a story. This has happened numerous, numerous times. And what does that say about us as humans? Wowza. And some of the first cases that I found was in 1990. And actually, two cases happened in 1990. So we're going to say that's when it got vi went viral, I guess? Sure. One case, so one case was in Lakewood, New Jersey. And it was at a haunted hayride. That sounds like spooky good times. So this is a teenager, and his job 
at the haunted hayride was to play someone that was about to kill themselves. Wholesome. Yeah. I assume this was a Christian fall carnival. (laughs) (laughs) And he was supposed to give this big speech and then throw himself off the gallows and hang himself. Well, that sounds mighty theatrical. As the ride came by, all of the riders were frightened and scared by this hanging body. But the tractor driver kind of got worried, because normally he was giving this big speech first, but this time the body was just hanging. And the driver found 17-year-old Brian Jewell hanging from the gallows, dead on the scene, with his feet touching the ground. So he did it before his cue, even. Or he might have done it at the last stop. You know, when they were going by last time. Because it cycled over and over. So we don't know if he did it kind of on purpose or if he just, it was an accident from the last time. We're not sure how that transpired. Well, it was definitely an accident. It's felt that it was an accident and not a suicide. Oh, honey, go go work at Burger King like a normal 17-year-old. The other incident that occurred in 1990 was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a 15-year-old, William Anthony Odom and his friends, had staged a haunted house in their aunt's basement. And they also staged a gallows scene in the basement. Similar incident occurred. He was pretending to hang himself, but actually did. We tell kids not to play with fire. We tell kids not to play with guns. I feel like we now need a PSA saying, like, Children, don't noose yourselves. Right, apparently. I mean, this is happening more frequently than all the PSA'd razor blades and the candy. It's true. It's true. Another case occurred in 2001 in Sparta, Michigan. And this was Caleb Rubb. He was a 14-year-old boy. Oh my God, they keep getting younger and younger. So he got a job playing at a... Haunted house, haunted hayride, haunted attraction, haunted basement, haunted what? Haunted hayride. Okay. <laughs> And he was supposed to jump out of the woods and scare the riders. He called his mother earlier that day and said he just felt awkward simply jumping out of the woods to scare kids. He wanted to do something really scary. Mm-hmm. And he also spoke with some of the other teens working there, saying, Hey, you see that, you see that skeleton hanging by the noose in the tree? What if I did that? You'd be a skeleton hanging by a noose in a tree, and none of us think you should do it. It's a terrible plan, Caleb. That sounds stupid and dumb, they all said, and then he didn't. So he put the noose around his neck. Okay. The branch whipped up and choked him. He, started, he probably weighed seven pounds. Right, oh right. And so he started scrambling, trying to get the noose off his neck, and everybody thought he was just joking around. And he did end up dying at the scene. His father said to have people right there watching him die, choking to death and to not do anything. I don't know if I can ever get over that. They just thought he was doing his scene, but he wasn't doing his scene. He was dying. And none of those people ever went to a haunted hayride ever again. The fun was spoiled forever. Every time they saw hay bale, PTSD. So another case, you you think I had more, huh? Was in September 2013 in Kentucky. And this was Jordan Morland. He was a 16-year-old. Uh-huh. And he was hanging halloween decorations at his house uh-huh and he went to play a prank on his sister by pretending to be hanging from a noose in his front yard how does one pretend to be hanging from a noose in your front yard well that's a great question you apparently are you're not right well apparently he did not know the answer to that question oh god kentucky <laughs> because his younger sister discovered him unconscious hanging from the tree oh 
And he was brought to the hospital. They tried to, you know, resuscitate him, put him on a ventilator. But he died 12 hours later. That's hilarious. That is a great prank. You got her. Oh, my God. Okay, we're going to have to talk to our kids about not playing with nooses, Jacob. Apparently. So these, so here's where the stories take a little bit of a turn. For the better? No. Oh. So on October 26, 2005, people noticed this really creepy Halloween decoration. It looked like a body hanging from a tree. That's creepy. 15 feet above the ground. It was really creepy. Yeah, it could easily be seen from the street by all the passing cars. Numerous people passed by it. We know that it was seen at 7.30 that morning. And it was not called in until much later. The police arrived at the scene at 11 o'clock. A.M. or P.M.? A.M. Okay, thank God. And they found the corpse of a 42-year-old woman suspended from the tree. Now, she had purposely committed suicide there. But nobody noticed? They noticed. But they just thought somebody had theatrical flair? I thought somebody got a little too much into Halloween. Oh my, so how many people do they think saw her? Like, a couple? Or a like- significant amount. It was on a, a street. People were driving by without a doubt. And the mayor's wife, uh, Frederica Delaware, said, Really, it looked like something somebody would have rigged up. And they think that she hung herself the night before at 9 p.m. So over 12 hours mm-hmm. in full view of the public. Right, but you can understand they might not have been able to see it till sunlight. Fair. So everyone that saw it thought it was a Halloween decoration. You can't blame them? I mean, do you want to be the crazy that calls in and is like, <gasps> there's a ghost? No, I, I, I see what you're saying. It's like, how do you differentiate that from your car? You're driving yeah. by 50 miles an hour, who knows? And you see just some decorations, and there's decorations everywhere else. And the neighbor next door has this big giant spider. I'm going to call the big giant spider in. Excuse me, sir. There's a big giant spider coming out of this house over here. It's going to eat this lady that's hanging in a tree. You don't want to be that guy. Nobody wants to be that guy. But you also don't want to be the guy that's like, oh, yeah, I saw that. I didn't call it in. Okay, so it's really sad because this lady was obviously very depressed, very lonely. And even in this very public act of like trying to, I guess, finally display all of her sadness or whatever i I mean i assume it was sadness loneliness depression etc she was still not received by her community or noticed by her community yeah she was still like isolated in plain sight hey yeah that's that's okay we're done that's the worst right um one more one more trick or treat oh it's it's not good so we have another case of a body that was confused for a halloween decoration so this occurred October 13th, 2015. Last year. Yes. And this was found in Ohio. And there was a dummy seen by several people dangling from a chain link fence. And everyone thought it was a Halloween decoration. A man walking his dog eventually called it in. So he was closer to it. And they found it to be the body of a 31-year-old Rebecca Cade, who died of blunt force trauma to the head and neck. 
Well, that doesn't put you in a chain link fence, if I'm not mistaken. Well, so not exactly sure how she got on the fence, but it's thought that she was trying to get away. From whoever was blunt force trauma-ing her? Yes. She had obvious injuries to her head and face, and she was most likely trying to climb over and got caught. A bloody rock was found nearby, and they did actually arrest a suspect in the case. Well, they, good. Yeah. When you say hanging from a chain link fence, do you mean like... It was by her shirt sleeve that was caught in the barbed wire. And she was actually, like, suspended off the ground kind of Yes. Thing? There's a fence around a power plant. Oh, okay. So it would have, like, chain link and then over-the-top barbed wire spirals to keep people from... I mean, the interesting thing about these stories, the Halloween hanging stories, is that whether it's an accident, a prank that goes wrong, or an intentional suicide, it's always self-inflicted. We don't ever see these stories where there's some boogeyman who kills his victims and hangs them up in plain sight and no one notices like that's not the story right as it so often is especially in these kind of spooky halloween stories no this is all about doing it to yourself and kind of like a kitty genovese phenomena like bystander effect the story really serves to sort of vilify the bystander sort of vilify the audience Oh, I agree. It's like, how could you think that this was just a Halloween decoration, not a body, not a real person? How could you fail to notice your fellow man? Even in this context, shouldn't you just know? And I think it also kind of condemns some of the gore and stuff of how, you know, that has become associated with Halloween. Right. It's like, why are we okay with having hanging bodies? Which we will talk a bunch about why we're okay with dead bodies <laughs> next episode. So before we move on from talking about the way this legend circulates and why it circulates, we really need to stop and take note of the fact that there are two common versions, and they have drastically different themes. One is sort of the story of an unfortunate accident, and it kind of picks up on this theme of youthful recklessness and letting a joke go too far and not knowing when to stop. We have some common themes found in these urban legends trying to tell these basic morals to kids. Cautionary tales. And then in the second telling, you have an intentional suicide and invisibility of the victim. And you kind of capitalizes on the idea of the bystander effect and really sort of focuses on the ideas of loneliness and isolation of the person who has committed suicide and sort of continues those themes. And I think that has a lot to do with hindsight and grief for survivors of people who've killed themselves. I think that there's a lot of guilt associated with, you know, surviving someone who's committed suicide. You always look back and think you should have seen it. Right, could have done something to stop it. Should have seen it sooner. And I think that a more essential theme of that story. So while they have very similar subject matter, they have vastly different context and vastly different themes. But they're very much married. They're too similar to separate completely. No, I agree. And I think an interesting point is that in all these cases, other than the last one, it is always a hanging. Hangings are interesting and very symbolic. Right, hanging has been around and been part of human culture, society, for as long as there's been written record, basically. As long as there's been rope. The first account of an execution by hanging is in Homer's Odyssey. That's not like a homicide or a suicide. It is a judicial 
execution, correct? Right, and that's a lot of times what it was used for in the past. It was also is cited in the book of Esther in the Bible, and it was a big part of Viking culture. The Vikings, you say, with the gallows business? And Odin being the god of the gallows. Right. It was very important, you know, because he sacrifices himself in the gallows. That's how he becomes the gallows god. It became a very important form of capital punishment in the UK as well as introduced by those Anglo-Saxons. And we do see it in the bog bodies. Mummies. We have an episode all about mummies. It's called The Perverse and the Preserved. You might want to go check that out. But yeah, bog bodies were found with nooses around their neck, perfectly preserved, looking rather serene down on the bottom of the peat bogs. Right, the imagery is just fantastic and creepy and disturbing. So we love it. But also in a way, like it's, it's like it's like beautifully disturbing. I don't know. It's the grotesque and the arabesque. Ah, true. But a lot of those are judicial hangings. Well, those were sacrificial hangings. While a lot of the early hangings were executions, we do see a rise in suicidal hangings as time goes by. In the British Journal of Psychology, Biddle has an article called Factors Influencing Decisions to use hanging. She states that hanging was adopted or contemplated for two main reasons. And these are suicidal hangings. Correct. And we know this not from mediums, which would be fun, but from people who have attempted and survived suicide attempts. So she states that hanging was adopted or contemplated for two main reasons. The anticipated nature of death from hanging and accessibility. Those favoring hanging anticipated a certain rapid and painless death with little awareness of dying and believed it was a clean method that would not damage the body or leave harrowing images for others. Materials for hanging were easily accessed and respondents considered it to be a simple task to perform without the need for planning or technical knowledge. Hanging was thus seen as the quickest and easiest method with few barriers to completion and sometimes adopted despite not being the first choice. Respondents who rejected hanging recognized it could be slow, painful, and messy and thought technical knowledge was needed for implementation. So really, the people that rejected hanging were much more based in reality. Everyone else had just seen too many Westerns. And so there are different forms of hanging. The oldest form would be suspension hanging. Okay, I feel like you're about to drop some medical knowledge on us. Oh, you get ready. Okay. And this would be a short drop. Okay. uh, Usually less than a meter or so. And it would cause strangulation. This can take several minutes for you to die. It can be excruciatingly painful. Your carotid arteries are compressed. Your brain starts to swell and herniate, along with your trachea being compressed, cutting off your oxygen. You also, with those carotids being compressed, get a reflex um, that causes your heart rate to drop and could lead to cardiac arrest. In one study, a researcher looked at videos of people hanging themselves. So people had videotaped their own suicide. And because in, why not? In one, it took a man who filmed his hanging 13 seconds to become unconscious, one minute and 38 seconds to lose muscle tone, and four minutes and 10 seconds for muscle movement to cease. That doesn't sound a bit pleasant at all. And so hangings were used 
you know, all throughout the good old Middle Ages and before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, science. Science happened. And we can always make everything better. I mean, think of, like, the guillotine. Right. That actually, I'm not opposed to the guillotine. If you do it right. If you do it right, sharpen it up. And so, in this case, they wanted to make hanging better. Okay, we're going to build a better mousetrap. And so they wanted... By the way, trigger warning, guys. We're going to talk about suicide a lot on this episode. (laughs) So in a long drop, it has to be long enough to break the subject's neck. And this was used in execution. So you originally had a standard drop, as it was called, Mm -hmm. which was about a four to six foot drop. And it came into use in the late 1800s when Samuel Houghton, an Irish doctor, published details about it in 1866 saying it was a much cleaner easier form of death more humane right this would be more likely to cause a neck break which is instantaneous well you no longer would be brain death almost yeah yeah. brain death and then as science does they made it even better oh thanks science if you can make hanging better thanks science i guess if you were going to be hanged you'd want it to be the best way possible no absolutely yeah And so this was what can be called the long drop. It was introduced in 1872, and it took into account the height and weight of the person. So they did math and science, you're telling me? Math is science. Don't confuse me. You'd have to get the right amount of slack, because if it was too short... You'd be strangled. And if it was too long... Your head would pop off. Yes. Are you serious? Okay, fun. Yes. Fun fact, if the rope's too long, your head pops off. Yes. I was joking. <laughs> it's true. There are several cases of it. One of the last hangings in Canada had an accidental decapitation. And that's why it was one of the last hangings in Canada. It didn't help. So, when the man in the wig bangs his gavel and says, You must be hanged by the neck until dead. They say that because it might have taken a while before we had the standard drop or the long drop. Correct. Uh... So you would have to hang there for several, several minutes before you would actually be dead. Hanged by the neck until dead. Because if you were cut down early, you could be alive. You could definitely have some anoxic brain injury, but you could be alive. You could be a zombie. And there, Well, there are numerous cases of people surviving hangings. Yeah, we're probably going to cover one in the future, actually. <laughs> so this long drop would have a fall that would be quick enough to produce between 1,000 and 1,250 feet pounds of torque on the neck when it jerks tight. So when the slack goes out of the rope, it's going to go equal opposite reaction? Yeah, some basic physics. All right. Usually the noose would be placed on the left side of the neck, kind of under the jaw, and so that jolt would help break the neck. You were trying to get a hangman's fracture which would be oh God. so y'all are such morbid people you doctors so this would be a bilateral fracture of the pars articularis which is part of the cervical vertebrae you would also be causing subluxation of your second and third cervical vertebrae which would just mean they kind of go over each other and would cause a crushing of the spinal cord And it would also disrupt one of the blood supplies going up to the brain. Yeah, it sounds horrific, and I don't condone the use of of nooses, just in general. But 
Despite the fact that all of these bad things are happening to your body, if one is to be executed, I've heard it oft repeated by people who are like, lethal injection is not available anymore. What are we going to do? The physicians they consult often say that hanging is actually the most humane method of execution. I don't know if I agree with that. When it's done correctly. Mm, I think beheading. I don't think anyone wants to see blood. Oh, that doesn't mean it's not the best. I think they mean humane for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Not just the person being hanged. Well, you have the guy in Utah. The firing squad. Requested the firing squad. Yeah. Good for him, dude. If you've got someone with great aim, <laughs> the problem with the firing squad is if you have a bunch of cheap shit shots. <laughs> then you're just wounded. <laughs> exactly. It's terrible. Um, but if you have a very sharp blade and just, just cut someone's head off in a split second, that's definitely the best way to do it. Yeah, I just don't think anybody's going to sign up for that kind of blood. We need to think it's clinical and devoid of carnage. Yes, but lethal injection is not that. We've discussed a little bit about how hanging works, and we've said that it started out as kind of a means of execution, but it was adopted by people who were seeking to commit suicide because the materials are often readily available. And it's perceived as the super foolproof manner of death, but it probably is less that than they're imagining. But There's definitely some Hollywood in there. Yeah. But let's say, Doc, that you are called to the scene of a crime, because that's going to happen in the scenario, and there's a victim hanging, and you are charged with deciding whether or not this person has committed suicide. What are some things you're going to look for to tell you if this is a true suicidal hanging, a staged suicidal hanging, or a homicidal hanging? It's a good question. There's not a clear answer. Oh, good. There's not, as we like to talk about things, without clear answers. But I did read a few articles from medical examiners on how to investigate a suicide. So hanging is one of the preferred methods of suicide. The number one method in Canada, and also in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. Second in the United States. Because we have the right to bear arms. That's right. Automatically, when a hanging is called in, it's kind of presumed to be a suicide. Uh-huh. Which really is a really bad mindset to put yourself in. All deaths should be viewed as homicides until proven otherwise. All unnatural deaths. Right. Okay, so when there's obviously, like, external cause... Right. So it's, you know, it's recommended by these medical examiners that you need to go out to the scene and examine the crime scene, see where the body is, see how it's hanged. And there are a lot of things you can observe at this scene. Often the most common form of hanging is a suspension hanging. Which is going to be a short drop, correct? Right. Just where it causes strangulation. And, you know, it is noted that there are case reports of homicidal hangings and so you definitely want to keep an eye out for some odd things okay like what well some things you see that you might worry about would be like the wrists tied together yeah i can see how that might be problematic but that's actually something that does not necessarily indicate a homicide okay because it is seen in cases of suicide as long as they're still able to kind of put the ligature around their neck, and tie their hands together, it's not a point towards homicide. Because people tie their hands together 
to try to avoid rescuing themselves. Okay, so it's like a um, they're trying to ensure that they're going to complete the act. And since they're using short drops or suspension hangings, they're more likely to have that reflex to fight it, I guess. Because you're going to be hanging there, suffocating. You can also see something kind of put into the mouth, like a cloth or a plastic bag or a bag over the head. And those also are similar to tying the wrist. They remove that possibility of like calling out for help. Okay. And so these things are just indications of a resolve to go through with the suicide, to prevent yourself from changing your mind. Okay. Some other things you might see are religious books, especially in certain cultures. Is that particular to hangings or is it... Just suicides in general. Uh, Other things that can indicate suicides in general, again, would be like a suicide note at the scene, especially in the appropriate handwriting. But that's a fairly uncommon feature of suicides, correct? But if you see it... It Don't argue with weight. it. Yeah. yeah, a history of like mental illness and previous suicide attempts. Right. So you do need to do a little digging into their medical history and yes. state of mind at the time. And sometimes there's drugs and alcohol present. Another yeah. kind of a means to sedate yourself or make yourself less likely to fight back. Right. And other things that you can note are that there's no sign of like forced entry or disturbance. You have a serene surrounding. No other wounds on the body. So you're obviously going to get those neck wounds, but if it's just a simple suicide or hanging, you shouldn't have bruising and things like that in other places. Right. You might have it if you if they put ligatures on their hands or whatever, you might see some things there. Right. right? But just in general, you shouldn't be covered in bruises and scratches and scrapes because there's nothing causing it. Right. There shouldn't be signs of a struggle. Also, you see like an obvious ingress method to the hanging so a way that you could do it okay so just like literally like a person could have gotten themselves up there you see like a chair that they climbed on or you see like right good practical knowledge for your everyday life (laughs) so it seems like there are pretty obvious signs that these events are suicides and most people will readily recognize them as such but i mean we have to refer back to our story Right? We've got to look at these kind of anomalies, Halloween hangings, and ask, like, why didn't people intervene? I mean, the signs were so obvious. People were watching, like, in one case, they're watching this kid struggle, and they thought he was, like, pantomiming. Or people were driving by this woman 15 feet up in a tree and barely noticing. What would make rational people dismiss these obvious traumas, these obvious problems? Right, it's just like whenever you're looking at the suicide case and you've got to say, hold up, wait. The context is there for it to be a suicide. It could be something else. It's just like that because you have to look at the context of the situation. And that's how our brain works. Our brain works by looking at context and patterns. Okay, so on Halloween, our context is people put gruesome shit all over their house you know, like dead bodies or decorate it like a zombie apocalypse, whatever. And we accept that as normal for that month. So they've created a new pattern, new context, correct? Right. So it's something to where seeing a Halloween decoration of a hanging body is now the norm. It's in our context of the time period and of what we expect 
to see. We might say that's a little over the top, but it is still more likely in the month of October that that thing hanging from a tree is a dummy than it is that it's a woman who's committed suicide. And how we process things in everyday life is just related to that context. And so it's Halloween. It's okay. We see this dead body hanging. Oh, it's just a Halloween decoration. And this is something that we use every day, all day. And it's one of the many, many reasons we make mistakes. And there's a great book called What We See, Why We Make Mistakes, which if you're interested in things like that and a little bit of psychology and science, definitely recommend it. You can pause. Go read it. And then come back to the show. So whenever you would see something that would not really fit in that context that you've developed in your mind, you're going to overlook it. Because you're watching for the normal patterns of things. And this you can fit into your normal pattern. So when you encounter something or someone out of contact, it makes recognition more difficult. Such as like if you were to see your teacher at the grocery store. Right. Or the, oh, one great example is like, you'd see like the barista that you see like every day at the coffee shop. You'd see him like at the store. I I know them. Where do I know them from? And then you ask me 13 times and I get really weird and suspicious and we have to fight about it. And no, I'm kidding. Because the NSA, they're after us again. So it's, it's, it's hard to place that face because we lose that pattern that we normally recognize them in. And you can see this in other examples too, um, such as like even with reading. You know, if you're giving a paragraph of instructions and not told what it's about, you can't understand the instructions. It's why, like newspapers, we use headlines and captions and photos to provide context to the story before you even read it. Right, and that helps to direct your attention to the more important features of the story. It's all about directing attention with headlines and instructions. And when instructions lack context, they're harder to imagine how you would put them in place. And it can even be applied to memory. So whenever you are trying to learn something, you will be able to remember that information if it's in the same context that you learned it in, such as one ridiculous experiment that was done in the UK. (laughs) One, just one? No, 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 one today, where they took scuba divers and had them memorize words. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you heard me. On land and underwater, it was much easier for them to remember the words they learned on land when trying to recall it on land and underwater when they were trying to recall it underwater. Would you like me to recount a personal anecdote? So when I'm working on comic pages, I will often listen to podcasts. Crazy. I know who would waste their time that way, but I'll often listen to podcasts while I'm doing that. And so I do those in phases. I'll flat a page, which means that I go in and put in one layer of color and then I go back and color and it's funny because whenever I'm going back over the page to color it I can recall the podcast I was listening to when I flatted it almost verbatim it's funny it's almost like I'm replaying a record like that groove is set in my mind because it's such a tactile task and then I can recall the auditory that goes with it yeah right and it, hey you know if it's another classic urban legend hmm that if you study drunk <laughs> You should take a test drunk. Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. There are tons of like studying college urban legends that we just really haven't tapped into. But I don't recommend studying drunk. I recommend writing drunk. And it's sober. Exactly. I also re- recommend recording podcasts with a light little wine buds if you're interested. 
But so you can see how the context of learning and memory and processing information has a great effect on our cognition. And whenever we are trying to analyze information, we can look at it in a few different ways. One of those is a bottom-up design where we just kind of take this sensory data in and process it. And the other, which is more related to our context effect of cognition, is related to a top-down design. And that's where we're looking at those prior experiences. We're looking at the knowledge we have to kind of interpret that stimulus. So, oh, I know it's Halloween. Oh, I know that guy's always decorating stuff. Oh, well, that's just got to be another Halloween decoration. I remember last year when we were in a neighborhood that did like super over the top kind of amazing Halloween decorations. I was sitting on the back porch and through two houses, like to a center median, I had a really clear line of sight. And I looked up and I saw somebody hanging from the tree and it scared me shitless. Like it lo- it was a dummy in a, ro- in a black robe hanging from the tree. Do you know that? I do because I went and checked because I'm that person. But like... You're the guy that would call. I'm the guy that would call. That's like my one good Samaritan actually caring about humanity thing that I do. I, I call. Then I felt so foolish for even contemplating the idea that it could be a real body and how naive and stupid of me, right? And I got really like embarrassed that I had thought that. But then I read this, and I'm like, I'm going to check and make sure it's a body. <laughs> I'm going to check every time. I will be taking all of our neighbors' Halloween decorations pulse this year. This is going to be awkward. <laughs> like, Scarecrow. <laughs> Do you have a brain? And so all of this leads up to something we always reference, like gestalt. Right, the need to complete, the schema. Assigning it to recognizable compartments in your mind and needing to complete the circle. Where you're patterns take precedence over your elements by putting all those things together you create a by putting all those things together in that context you create a new understanding of the information right and that's why it's so hard to shake stereotypes and things like that that's why that we have preconceived notions when we don't want to is because it's easier to learn the pattern than it is to consider the individual right and this is Again, that example of just seeing the patterns, seeing everything else and putting it together. And so putting all those patterns and ideas and context into motion, taking that knowledge you have in the past, using the experience you've had, is very much used in investigations of suicides, homicides, crime scene investigation. But what if somebody knows that? What if some super savvy criminal mastermind knows about gestalt which sounds like an evil villain by the way they've probably just been listening to the podcast oh hi (laughs) happy you're here rate and review don't kill anybody don't kill anybody today okay today tomorrow tomorrow's fine fine. so if you are the evil criminal mastermind er gestalt and you have decided that you are going to sort of hijack these patterns and use them for your own nefarious purposes. What is an investigator to do? Well, hopefully they would notice those patterns. But as we've seen, that's really hard to do. But there actually has been some research showing that if you if you point it out, if you point out that you're using your context processing, 
then it completely nullifies it. Right. And that's why it's so important to note things like crime scene staging. There's been a lot of literature produced recently that instructs law enforcement officers to be aware of the possibility that crime scenes have been staged. So staging. What's crime scene staging? It's very interesting. I bet you think that. So staged crime scenes are defined as crime scenes where clues have been prearranged by offenders in order to create misdirection within the investigation, as defined by Chancellor and Graham. And Gebirth, whose name is impossible to say correctly, and has created a ton of fantastic literature on this subject, says that staging is a conscious criminal action on the part of the offender to thwart the investigation. Thwart is my favorite word. So just a quick rundown of some fun facts about crime scene staging. Most staging offenders are male. Most staging victims are female. Most victim-offender relationships are intimate to ex-intimate. And that means either a spouse or an ex-spouse, etc. Many murders are preceded by victim-offender conflict. Many offenders discover the body or report the victim missing. Many offenders verbally stage. Firearms are the most common weapons used in staging. Many offenders reposition the weapon in the scene. Many offenders reposition the victim's body at the scene. Murders are staged as suicides, accidents, car accidents, sexual homicides, interrupted robberies, home invasion murders, burglary murders. Staging behavior is only limited by the motivation, creativity, and imagination coupled with the condition of the victim in relation to the offender's physical prowess. Ah, I like that. You can do it. I like this, like... You're only limited by your imagination! You can be an astronaut, or the next president, or you can stage a crime scene to get away with the murder of your girlfriend. To a world of pure imagination. Uh, That's all I can hear. All I can hear is Willy Wonka when I read that line. And this... Fun facts come from Laura Petler, who has a fantastic website and a new book, all dedicated to the study of crime scene staging and forensic analysis. And she has created an incredible resource and sort of a hub for investigators who are interested in pursuing this line of study. So besides just wanting to reach their full potential... As their mom would want them to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why would someone stage a crime scene? Well, there are kind of two main reasons that people do this. At least in primary staging. We'll talk about some of the other forms later. They either want to redirect attention away from the most likely suspect, usually them. Sometimes they might be protecting, you know, a kid or whatever. Or they want to protect the victim and their family. So, as I mentioned, there is primary stage scenes. And primarily stage scenes are defined as intentional or purposeful altering or changing of the physical evidence or other aspects of the crime scene or providing false information in order to misdirect or avert the investigation. And a lot of what I'm going to be saying now comes from Chancellor and Graham. In essence, the offender sets the stage for a false reality based on their fantasy of what the scene should look like to represent their version of the events. Again, we're back to imagination. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're going the Hollywood route. They're going what they've seen on CSI. Oh, yeah. Gonna build this up. I think it's like more often Dexter 
Like, if I'm guessing, I'm just guessing. So they might, you know, make an effort to, like, point out physical evidence. Like, ah, oh, oh, there's semen here. Did you see the semen? Always semen there's everywhere. There's semen everywhere. And it's all in the database. And all you have to do is collect it and and just... Push a button. Push a button. The results are back in, like, ten minutes. Yeah, and the colored lights come on, and it's all really cool. And then you get to the bad guy. They point out physical evidence that might be present or missing. Like, oh, I think they took the weapon with them. Did you notice that she had the gun in her hand? Just saying, she has the gun in her hand. It's probably suicide. And they offer explanations like, she has the gun in her hand. It's probably suicide. She's been very depressed lately. They'll make false statements and just lie, lie, lie to police. They make an effort to interact with officers usually. And this is called verbal staging, which is just something I want to read all the books about. Which is basically just lying. lying. Just lying. <laughs> this is planned out. They've been planning this out for weeks. No, not always. You might be seeing the latent consequences of an oh shit moment. And if you see those consequences of the oh shit moment, you are seeing ad hoc staging, which is kind of like a quick and hastily constructed alternate explanation for the crime where evidence is adjusted to fit that scenario. So what kind of cases is a scene in? A lot of times it'll be, you know, smaller criminal acts that led to more dire consequences or negligent activity. Negligence of kids? Yeah. Uh. And child abuse, sexual abuse, things of that nature that might have been habitual before. It's most commonly just a means of self-preservation, and usually it's like a, an escalation of prior behavior. Most often in the ad hoc cases, the complainant, the person who notifies authorities that a crime has been committed, is often involved in the actual offense or criminal activity. And you'll see in the reports made by these complainants that they often lack knowledge or inability to remember what exactly happened. They're very vague, very wordy and vague. So keeping those details to where they don't have to remember too much if they're good liars. But what happens if they're not good liars? Oh, lots. Lots of bad things. They're pressed on details. They might freak out and start making them up. Other times, if they're smart... They will just be like, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Because it's easy to keep a few lies straight, but when you get too elaborate, it gets very difficult to remember on the fly. And investigators are trained to question in such a way to where sort of sensory details would be brought back into the recollection in unexpected ways and guide people through a scene in a way that can give them a general idea whether or not the person was actually there and actually witnessing what they claim to have witnessed. And another common feature of this kind of ad hoc primary scene staging is that offenders commonly need to overcompensate and sort of paint themselves in the best possible light. So one case I read about talked about a a pair of parents, a mother and a father, who claimed that their child had been abducted from their home. And in reality, they were negligent parents and the child had died while the mother was on the internet, which is a rant I'll save for another day. But in the time between when they disposed of the child and when they notified authorities, the mom deep cleaned the entire house and 
that actually alerted authorities that something was going on because all of her neighbors and acquaintances reported that she was a terrible housekeeper. So that's ad hoc. That is on the fly. Oh shit, something bad happened. Let me try to fix it to where it looks like I didn't do anything. What's the other form of your primary staging? Other form of primary scene staging is premeditated. And it's meticulously planned, and it might include things like fraudulent burglary, theft, false rape reports, or even homicides. Also, a lot of insurance scandals and things of that nature are conducted in this way. So these are the cases that are planned out weeks, months in advance. These are Ronald Clark O'Brien's. These are pixie stick murders. See the last episode. They sit down and think about what they need to do in order to not be suspected. These are the people who sit around thinking about how to commit the perfect crime, how to get away with murder, in whatever sense of the word they might mean it, sometimes literally. Evidence is provided or the scene is altered in ways that are, again, only limited by the intelligence, imagination, and overall life experience of the offender. You can do it, You kid. can do it. Don't be that little cat hanging in the poster. Hang in there. You can do... Oh, God. No. <laughs> I think we just found our title. You can overcome any obstacle, even killing somebody. Those pesky police will never catch you now. It focuses police on the act that is being portrayed. They might go out of their way to make things obvious. It's based on the offender's understanding of police procedure. Hollywood. I.e. how much CSI and Law & Order they watch. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You've watched way too much. Oh, honey. If I wanted you, Dad. (laughs) Luckily, I can't run this ship without you. You've bought at least another year. Common elements might include most of the people who go out of their way to stage crime scenes in this way and kind of direct suspicion away from the crime, almost make the crime invisible, make it look like an accident. All I can hear is like the mafiosos, like, I'm going to kill you and make you look like an accident. But a lot of times these people are not mafiosos and they have no prior criminal activity. This might be a first offense or they might have done it once before and hidden it very well and gotten away with it. There might be too much evidence. Yeah, they are trying to focus the police away from the actual crime and thus preventing like a further investigation into it like that's really the goal that's how they get away with it the repeat offenders you see here oddly just from my murderpedia brain the people who fit in this category are a lot of times women it's black widows and like people who kill their kids bluebeards Yes, but we don't really have that as much anymore now that divorce is easier. See that episode. (laughs) So they might provide too much evidence. It might be super obvious that this is a drug overdose because the body's covered in cocaine or whatever. They over-exaggerate details in order to redirect attention. You know, this might be the burglary that comes in and dumps every drawer in the house out. You have to throw this detail in because it's just precious. When people stage a crime scene, there will be a proprietary interest. So if a husband's going to kill his wife and he wants to stage it to look like a burglary, all of her stuff will be destroyed, rifled through, just utterly a mess. And his side of the bed isn't even unmade. His comic book collection is completely intact. His? Well, yeah, hers is gone through. He <laughs> um, got that Hulk 131. Oh, no, don't talk about it. And also, people who are staging crime scenes will focus on societal prejudices. 
unidentified black man. Yes, this is either... Okay, so if I were going to do it, I would say it was a man from Florida, but most people don't have that knowledge. How do you tell it's a man from Florida? You read his license plate on the back of his shirt. (laughs) Mullet. (laughs) Three-button shirt. He looked Floridian. Cargo shorts. All I can think about is Susan Smith. You remember Susan Smith, that peach of a lady who drowned her children and told police that she was carjacked by an unknown black male and see Diane Downs, etc. Like the unknown black male is a staple in mattress or in full side. Yeah, as we talked about in the La Arena episode. Gosh, we're full of callbacks today. Okay, and these stories are not designed to stand up against long-term investigation, right? They're in and out. They're just like, nothing to see here. That is the title of this, actually. This section should be called Nothing to See Here. Actually, I would say this section is called, hey, look right there. (laughs) Right there. You see that? See that thing I did? I mean, that she... (laughs) So Hazelwood and Napier say that in stage scenes, the investigator is confronted with a necessity to determine motive for two different behaviors. One, the original act that necessitated the staging, and two, the staging itself. Hazelwood and Napier continue to say that in staged crimes... Learning the motive will more often than not lead to the person responsible. Thus, establishing motive not only helps determine that the scene has been staged, but also leads to discovering the impetus leading up to the staging and ultimately leading to identifying the offender. So we have primary staging, where it's a very intentionally changing a crime scene to try to mislead police. Mm-hmm. And do we have do we have secondary staging? How did you know that? It's like you're a scientist or something. Yes, if you have an A, you have to have a B. Ask your English teacher. Secondary staging is a completely different animal in the staging wheelhouse. It has more to do with the psychological needs of the offender. And this subset of scene staging might include things like depersonalization or body posing or any kind of symbolic or ritualistic additives to the crime scene. Uh, You might find things like killer signature here. This is kind of the glamorous serial killer idea. It's like, oh, there's a killer who always dresses them up in tutus and puts swans around their neck or whatever. Did that really happen? Not yet. (laughs) You should see that look. So depersonalization is a major feature of secondary staging. And Gerbeth, whose name I'm still saying wrong, defines depersonalization as the action taken by a murderer to obscure the personal identity of the victim. The face may be beaten beyond recognition, or the face of the victim may be covered. This can make forensic identification more difficult, or it can offer the offender the possibility of allowing the victim to become a stand-in for someone else and act out whatever psychological drama they have building in their own mind using substitute. Okay, so secondary staging has more to do with the actual murder psychological state. Disorders? Yes. <laughs> Let's call them disorders. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. For sure. Then trying to mislead police. Right. This is something, this is almost a compulsion. Depersonalization can also include divesting an individual of their gendered characteristics, such as the removal or mutilation of the genitals or sex organs. 
it can also include body posing, and this is especially prominent in sexual homicides. Now, sexual homicides are not just homicides where there's a sexual element present, but where sex or gender expression was kind of the core motivation for the homicide. And in these cases, it's often found that the bodies are posed in sexually explicit or very demeaning sort of suggestive ways. They use the word provocative in the study, and I hate that. Another facet of this kind of posing is that other props might be added to the staging, such as the fixtures of bondage or post-mortem mutilation of the body. It becomes very ritualistic. These are the elements that you'll see people refer to as a criminal signature. One case that they cite in this article is John List. Again. Sounds familiar. From our La Urena episode. Our male La Urena. Yeah. If even. If you remember, kind of killed his whole family. Played music, did them in certain ways, and lined them all up in the ballroom. In sleeping bags and covered all their faces. Yes. Yeah, very much fits in it. So there's an A, there's a B. A lot of times that means there's a C. You have primary, secondary, tertiary? Tertiary, we have it. And that's often like, etc. Like, I feel like this is the, and that other stuff that happens to category. A lot of times this is not carried out by the offender, which is interesting. Sometimes it's incidental to the crime, but it's done without criminal intent. I'm guessing this is something that is often done in cases of suicide. It can be suicide. It can be homicide. The automatic thing I think of is like someone putting clothes on a naked dead body. Right, but that could be natural death, too. That could be right. autoerotic asphyxiation. It could be accidents. It could be whatever. But it's just something to kind of, like, lessen the embarrassment, but definitely with suicides. Yeah, family members are often the ones that do this. Mm-hmm. It may have altered the crime scene, but it has not compromised the investigation. And so we spoke earlier about whenever a medical examiner or the police come across a suicidal hanging, or I should just say a hanging, Mm -hmm. they should not automatically assume it's suicidal, even though that's the most likely cause. Using your context clues, you're going to assume body hanging from a noose is a suicide. Put itself there. But in the book Practical Homicide Investigation... They say all death inquiries should be conducted as homicide investigations until the facts prove differently. The resolution of the mode of death as suicide is based on a series of factors which eliminate homicide, accident, and natural causes of death. So it presupposes nothing. It would really hinder, hurt your investigation to assume something. Because assuming makes an ass out of you and me. Yeah, that's the reason. (laughs) Because you then can lose very valuable evidence to try to solve a crime. So, I did a thing. I read medical journals. How many times have I told you? (laughs) I tried to read autopsy reports, too. It's really hard. I helped. I'll read literature all day long. This stuff makes my eyes cross. But this is interesting. So, from the article, Homicidal Hangings, a retrospective study by Dr. Amy Savayu which is a retrospective of a lot of cases that she and other medical examiners have conducted in Quebec. She states that the manner of death in a hanging is virtually always suicide. So the manner of death is different from the cause of death. The cause of death is what actually ends life, what actually causes a person to become deceased. This can be heart attack or 
blunt force trauma or poison candy, poison candy, whatever it is. Manner of death is what caused it. So accidental. This is where you get that great phrase, uh, death by misadventure. I'm going to die by misadventure. I know. I love that one. So like in a hanging, it could be either like strangulation or crushing of the spinal cord. Well, that would be the cause of death, not the manner. The manner of death would be either homicide, suicide, or accident. Hanging generally implies suicide, simulation of suicide, in which a victim has been previously killed or made unable to resist by other means, but that should be regarded as an uncommon event. And in rare cases, there are actual homicidal hangings, in which the cause of death is hanging and the manner of death is homicide. So in this study, it was done in Quebec, they have like a six-year period, right? Mm-hmm. And so how many suicides did they have? How many were homicidal hangings? There were 251 hangings. And of those, eight were accidents and four were homicides. The rest were suicides. So that's like, it's a small percentage, but it's still four people well, in one city. I was going to ask you, is it a statistically significant amount? Like, is it enough to warrant further study and explore? I mean, I guess it's just people. So yeah, it's not, it's not like a hard science. It's like if there's one, <laughs> you've got to think about it. Since they're homicides, someone perpetrated them. And those are four people that would have gotten away with murder had the manner of death not been correctly assessed. Right. So the stakes are high. In this study... The researchers noted that there was a strong overall male predominance with a ratio of about five to one. And previously published literature cites the gender bias toward men being at about four to one or eight to one. So this falls well within that range. So that's in hanging suicides. Correct. And interestingly, there's an overall female predominance in homicidal hangings or simulated suicide by hanging. So talking about statistic significance, this would not be because it's such a small sample Correct. But it is just kind of an interesting point. Right. Of the four victims, three of them were female. Most of the people who committed suicide by hanging were aged 20 to 39 years. And in homicides, interestingly, most of the time the body was cut down. It's just an interesting pattern to note that the bodies are almost always cut down in the homicidal hangings. The researchers state that this is not commonly identified in other literature on the subject, but They think that maybe because they were actively looking for it, they were able to spot it. And so they don't know if people are just overlooking it, the phenomenon of homicidal hanging or simulated suicide, if it just looks so much like suicide that it can't be perceived if you're not actively looking for it, or if there's just something about Quebec that makes it happen. It's probably Quebec. And it's just like, we're weird. Whatever. You know, it's more likely, it's that context. It's that they're looking at it, oh, well, there's a body hanging, it's got to be a suicide, And even when you're looking for it, you're like 98% of the time correct, but there's that 1.4%. Right. And they say that their agenda with this paper is just to convince medical examiners that an autopsy is needed and that you need to go to the scene and that you need to look. There are some patterns that they noted with suicide that would make, you know, help alert a pathologist if they notice them that might point them toward considering homicide. And one of those things is a long drop. It's very uncommon for people to commit suicide using a long drop method of hanging. A lot of times they'll find bruises on the interior arms or possibly on the lower limbs. And that should kind of point you away from thinking suicide as well. Because why would you bruise? Right. You could also look for like bruises on the lower back. I mean, these are things that would maybe alert you to a struggle. 
or like incidental trauma from positioning the body. And uh, it's important to do fingernail scrapings under fingernails and check to see if there's any foreign DNA on the body because that would indicate also a struggle. Yeah, it's also mentioned that the rope should be analyzed for DNA because if when you're tying a rope... You're losing epithelial DNA. Exactly. Or shedding. Also, the presence of blood at a hanging should generally alert you that something is not right. Right. If it's a simple hanging, there should not be blood. However, if they went through a glass table or something on their way down, we can, you know, use our big brains and figure out that maybe that's what the blood's from. Why you might need to go to the scene. So that brings us to a really interesting case. What's that? This is a favorite of the true crime web sleuth Reddit set. You? No, I don't Reddit. You would if you I had don't time. We- I, don't, I don't web sleuth. I do a podcast. This is the case of Rebecca Zahau. On July 13th of 2011, I'm going to present this to you like I'm Commissioner Gordon and you're one of my trusty GCPD officers. Can I be Batman? No. Why not? Because I'm Batman. Okay, I'm sorry. Can I be Robin? Yes. I need tights. (laughs) So here we go. Coffee and a cigarette. Sitting in our briefing room. Bulletin board before us. Let's look at the case. All right, Commissioner. All right. On July 13th, 2011, police were called to 1043 Ocean Boulevard to the Spreckles Mansion, a historic home in San Diego County. They learned that a nude-bound female was found hanging from the balcony in the courtyard by the homeowner's brother named Adam Shacknai. The victim was identified as Rebecca Zahau, the girlfriend of homeowner Jonah Shacknai. She was 5'3 weighed 100 pounds. She was an Asian female aged 32 years old. Her wrists and ankles were bound with red rope, and her hands were behind her back. The same red rope and a t-shirt were tied around her neck. The same red rope was hanging over balcony railing. The brother had used a table and a kitchen knife to cut her down upon discovering her at 6.48 a.m. There was also a message painted on a door leading to the room where she had jumped from the balcony on the hallway side. The message was painted in black paint that said, She saved him. Can you save her? Ominous. Right? Upon opening the door with an ominous cryptic message scrawled across it, They entered a room where they found red rope secured to the footboard of a heavy iron bed on the second floor that went out a set of double doors leading to the balcony and over the railing. There were also two paintbrushes. One had black paint on it. There were two kitchen knives near the bed, presumably used to cut the rope into sections. One side of the bed was pulled away from the wall about seven inches. There were foot and toe impressions found in the balcony, and there was a pretty thick layer of dirt that had been disturbed. No other footprints were present. The only DNA or fingerprints found at the scene belonged to Rebecca. Upon interviewing one of the neighbors, they found that Rebecca had confided in her that she was dealing with a fair amount of stress and that the neighbor had noticed that Rebecca had been losing weight and seemed depressed. A journal found on Rebecca's phone supported this idea. And it's possible that she was triggered because two days previously, she had been watching the homeowner's son, Max Shacknai, who was six years old, along with her 13-year-old sister, Zena. In the home, they were the only two people besides Max there. And he fell from the railing of the third floor balcony, hit the chandelier, fell back into the banister, and fell to the floor, breaking his neck and causing brain death. She called 911 and attempted to administer CPR. And emergency personnel came to the scene and removed him to a children's hospital where he was on life support at the time. Rebecca also received a phone call from 
one of the Shack Knife family members around 10.50 p.m. telling her that Max's condition was worsening or I imagine that they were going to donate the organs or something. Oh, you know, that was a nice phone call. Oh, yeah, because I don't believe it was from Jonah, her boyfriend. I think it was actually from Max's mother. I haven't seen that confirmed by the police department. So, okay, let's use our context clues. Um, We have a female that has obvious depression and that has hung herself. The only thing that is hung is a picture on a wall. People cannot be hung. Well. Oh, well, mm. (laughs) we are not discussing that on this episode, but she's hanged. So let's start with very basic hanging body. What do you think? Suicide? I mean, depressed woman found hanged. Suicide. Done. Case closed, Commissioner. I'm going to go look for the bat. He's still out there, you know. I'm not sure I like you. It was ruled a suicide, officially, and the case is closed. Oh, case closed. We're done. Uh, no. I don't no. think we are. The no. internet's not done. That's for sure. <laughs> the internet's never done. So, really, there are some things that make you go, huh. Hmm. Hmm. So, yes, hanging body, suicide. Fair. But it's a woman. So what does that tell you? Okay, there's a less of a predominance of women killing themselves by hanging, which I find that interesting because in a lot of the research, you see that whenever women kill themselves, whenever they commit suicide, it usually involves more of a clean death. And hanging is considered kind of a clean death. Right, but it's also violent. Right, it's a gray area. There are other cleaner methods, I would think. But she was also tied up. Her hands were behind her back in pretty significant ligatures, like pretty intricate-looking tie. They were figure eight, and her feet were also bound in a figure eight pattern. So that's that's interesting. But mm-hmm. as we discussed earlier, that is seen in suicide cases. You do have several documented suicides where the hands are bound trying to prevent themselves from stopping the suicide why would you bind your feet hmm that's a good question there really is no answer for that and also she did have a homemade gag which we did discuss earlier true it was created out of a t-shirt and when adam shack found her he removed the gag from her mouth and tried to administer cpr it was not in the same state when the investigators arrived and one of the things mentioned in the autopsy report which I read the autopsy report. (laughs) Sam tried. Mm Mm-hmm. Twice. And is that the hands could have been tied in the front and slip the hand out, put it behind your back, and then slip your other hand back in. Now, while that is a possibility, it seems like it defeats the purpose of binding your hands if you could easily pull one out. I can't imagine it occurring to someone that you should put your hands behind your back. I can understand why, like, in this weird hindsight place where we are, you know, you could reach up, theoretically. But it's still a strange choice to me. I think another question is, could she have tied those knots? Did she have those skills? Well, they did analyze all the computers from the home, and there was no search history. They also had access to her phone, and there was no search history, indicating that she'd been researching knots. Now, this could have been prior knowledge. She might have known this from another phase of her life. Girl Scouts. Yeah, who knows? She could have checked out a book from the library. Oh, well, no, that's impossible. But yeah, there there was no indication that she'd been researching it as of that night. It would have to be something that she knew how to do from another instance. And interestingly, now this is the moment, I was 50-50 on this. And this is the thing that makes me lean the hardest toward homicide. And I think you're going to find it quite funny. Like, that this is what... Funny? Pres- funny. Like, 
ridiculous. I think you're going to find it ridiculous. How about that? That this is my big red flag. So the noose was put around her neck, presumably before she bound her hands, which is possible. But interestingly, both the noose and the gag went over her hair instead of being directly against the skin, which means that the hair was between the noose and her neck. Now, the reason that strikes me as odd is I'm a woman with long hair and have been for as long as I can remember. And every time you put something around your neck, whether it's a necklace, whether it's a pullover or shirt, whatever, the first thing I do almost reflexively is flip my hair through it. But what if your hands were bound? You couldn't, but right. you also couldn't put it around your own neck. Are you sure? I think you could. I think you could. I think you could manage it. Why? I just think that it is physically possible. How? So you would bind your hands. I'm not saying it's it's logical. Then you would use your hands that are bound in front of you to put a noose around your neck. And then you would slip your hand out and put it behind your back. I'm not saying it's logical. I'm saying it's possible. You know, this case is a collection of outliers. Correct. True. Fine. But I don't know why she would bind her hands. Like, why wouldn't she just slip her hand out? So that's my big red flag, is that her hair was not pulled through the noose, which I know is silly, but, like, I just can't imagine. It's almost like muscle memory, weird tick. It strikes me as very odd. Well, another interesting point is we talked about the short drop, long drop, and that most of the time in suicides, it is a more short drop strangulation hanging Mm -hmm. versus a long drop, which this would have been because she would have gone out of the second floor balcony. Right. The drop was nine feet and two inches, which is significant. Well, you do have to question like, so Max, the child that she was in charge of caring for, went over a railing. And you have to wonder if she is acting out in response to that trigger. Is she trying to like reenact his accident? In some way. Yeah, I could see a psychologist really digging into that. Yeah, and I I do think it's interesting. Also, another question that we have to ask is how did she know how long to make the rope? Like, there's only one set of footprints, right? So it would indicate that somebody came out on the balcony one time. And the only way that you can gauge the distance the rope would need to be is to kind of drop it and eyeball it. So you'd need to step out on the balcony. Just a good guess. That's a hell of a thing to guess when you're being this precise and weird about everything else. Another interesting point. Well, I mean, and something I find interesting is that she was completely nude. Okay, so in my effort to make my internet search history as checkered as possible, I found a paper called Naked Suicide by Dr. Robert Simon. And it begins with a quote from Job that said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And he discusses the symbolic importance of committing suicide while naked And also ways that clinicians and pathologists can interpret this behavior in order to provide treatment to people who have survived attempts. And also in diagnosing whether deaths were accidental, suicide, or homicide. He talks a little bit about reasons that bodies are found naked in ways that don't make sense. And some of them include autoerotic asphyxia, which, why don't you tell us what that is? That is when... (laughs) A person has a sexual excitement from cutting off their oxygen supply. Right. And one thing he discusses that I like was not aware was a thing was um, people who will expose themselves to large amounts of carbon monoxide for the same reason, which I've always heard of it being like belt suspension or things like that. Yeah. But you also hear about suicides done that way as well. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Most of the victims of autoerotic asphyxiation death are male, 
But there have been recorded cases of female victims as well. Now, they are more rare, and the cases are more often than not kind of muddied and misunderstood because there might be an absence of paraphernalia at the scene that, that would be associated with like the iconography that you see in cases with men. More often than not, these women are found completely nude where the men are found partially disrobed. And he says that one of the problems with investigating these types of cases is that conventional wisdom has it that a woman found hanging naked is most likely homicide or stage suicide. It's thought that the feminine modesty will carry over into suicide death. But rarely, these kinds of suicides can happen. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And actually, that idea of modesty has been shown to be very strong within us. I guess because it's just built in since we were very young. And it's so it's not that crazy to think that it would carry into this. Right. You were telling me about a study about hypnotism. Right. It was in the old uh, like CIA studies where they hypnotized somebody and then made her kill someone you know, like with a rubber knife and she did it no problem and then they were trying to see how far they could push it mm-hmm. see where the boundaries were mm-hmm. it was a good old like 60s cia you know yeah so everyone's MK Ultra, et cetera. Right. and they asked her to disrobe and she did not not she did, she did not. not that's when she broke it because she knew that Killing somebody was fake. She Staged. knew it was real. Exactly. But when it came to that, she wouldn't. It's very interesting. It's also in the 60s, so social mores and morals are very different. But I do think that that's still present and prevalent. Dr. Simon states that bodies will be found nude when the nudity is sort of required to facilitate the manner of suicide. You told me earlier that often nude women suicides or found like in the bathtub. Right. And that's because there will be significant blood loss, like in wrist cutting or anything like that. It's just another way to make things cleaner, to do it in the bathtub and to remove all clothing. And normally you can tell if this was part of the planning, if you see that the clothes have been kind of neatly piled or folded or, you know. Fitting with that clean tidy, death yeah, kind of right. idea. He states that people who want to drown themselves will often remove clothing because they think it'll make them float up. You know, if you're going to cut a specific area, you'll remove the clothing in that area. The state of an individual's clothing at the scene can provide important clues in a psychological autopsy. That's what I was talking about earlier with, like, are the clothes neatly stacked? Were they removed in a hurry? If they're all over the place, you know, it can indicate either a struggle or psychosis. And it can also be, like, was the individual just naked at the time that they had the idea? Because 25% of respondents in the study indicated that they made attempts within five minutes of having suicidal ideation. So, like, if you just happen to be naked. Right. Like, when Casey talks about is Marilyn Monroe, who was found nude from an overdose, and people have always wondered and speculated on whether or not that was an accidental overdose or suicide. And he says it's especially problematic to try to analyze the nudity in her case because she slept naked, and that was a well-known fact. So was she just going to sleep and happened to be naked, or was there some kind of sexualized imagery or something? Interestingly, most naked suicides occur indoors, and they're rarely seen with gunshot wounds. So her naked suicide was outdoors, which is another thing that he points to as highly unusual. But you have to wonder, like, they're saying, oh, is it on display or not? I don't know. She was in a courtyard. She was in the courtyard of the house. So she was outside, but she was not visible to passersby. Right, but there's something about the idea of going from indoors to outdoors during the 
act that is very much about display to me. Right. I mean, she could have jumped from the inside railing. Right. In the exact same spot if she wanted to mimic Max's death or whatever. It's, It's a weird choice to me. And also, like, news helicopters circled and were able to film her nude body on the ground for nine hours after her death. And there, you can find those images online. They're deeply disturbing. Yay, media. Which also, no one covered her. And I find that very interesting. Now, Dr. Simon also discusses some psychological themes that came up with patients. And these, again, would be survivors of suicide attempts who indicated they, that they were nude at the time that they attempted suicide. And some of the major themes that they brought up in their interviews were rebirth and cleansing, atonement, exhibitionism, eroticization of death, and the need or want to shock survivors. Okay, so if we do look at it as, oh, is she trying to atone for the eventual death of Max, who she was watching, maybe it could be related. If she feels that people are unfairly angry with her, she might be angry and resentful. Like, if she's taking the blame for this thing that was an accident... Maybe she is trying to get back at them. Like, how dare you say I did that? Also, her family was Christian. They grew up in a pretty religious household. So there might be something about, like, the rebirth and cleansing and that kind of stuff happening as well. Yeah, but suicide's also seen as a big no-no. Right. And her sister talks about that in interviews. Like, we believe if you commit suicide, you go to hell. So I don't think Rebecca would have committed suicide. Like we've been discussing, it is important to look at the psychological state of the decedent whenever something like this occurs. Right. And this is done through um, what's known as a psychological autopsy, which is defined as a postmortem investigation procedure requiring the identification and assessment of suicide risk factors present at the time of death with the goal of enabling a determination of the manner of death to as high a degree of certainty as possible. And that definition was used by Dr. Knoll in some of his writing. So I definitely think that there are some red flags. Mm-hmm. Some red flags. I have to agree. There are red flags everywhere. <laughs> right? This case is essentially one giant red flag. Yeah, and it's all about which red flags you want to see. So another thing that all these web sleuths like to point out is the writing on the wall. Dun, dun, dun. And... I wonder, like, can you consider this a suicide note? It's interesting because obviously it can be read several different ways. It can be seen as a suicide note, which is, if it is the case, the text, she saved him, can you save her, is antagonistic and would indicate that she is trying to punish someone, create feelings of guilt that surpass those normally associated with people who survive someone who commits suicide. And the idea that she was trying to anger or provoke feelings of guilt or shock the survivors would fit with the idea of this kind of exhibitionist act of being nude and bound and sort of a sexualized death scene. But if you look at it as an expression of guilt, why is it a question? No, it's, it's a very odd statement. I, I really don't know if you can consider it a, a suicide note if it was by her a message. Right. And, you know, some people online... <laughs> I don't know how to read an autopsy report. <laughs> we'll point out things like, oh, well, there was only black paint on her breast and things like that. Which Actually, there was. Yes, true. But there was also black paint on her hands. Okay, but let's talk about that for a second because I find this incredibly odd. The door that the note was painted on opened to the hall, which means that she would have had to go into the hall of the guest house where Adam was supposedly staying 
go into the hall of that place completely nude for it to be on her breast and paint the message. Right, but if she's already if she's already suffering from some kind of psychosis of some sort to where she's about to do this, would she care? Well, if she's worried about being stopped, yes. If if she goes in the hallway naked and she's painting on the walls and the brother sees her. But what if he's just not in the house? What if she knows he went out? He's not. He's home. He's in the main house, and she knows that. Like, and it's so weird. she knows he's in the main house, right? But his bag's there, and presumably he's coming back there to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that she did it. Why would she have black paint on her hands? Because she fought with someone who had black paint on their hands. Hmm, maybe so. Just saying. And also, it's painted at a height of about six feet. Now you can reach up to six feet. I'm five three. I'm actually five two and a half. But we'll round up. And I, I could reach up to six feet to paint if I wanted to, but it's not comfortable, you know, which would lead you to believe that maybe a taller person painted it. So in reading the autopsy report, it is without a doubt that she was hanged. You know, it's not like someone murdered her and went later on the lawn and tied some rope around her neck and tied some rope to the bed. You know, it, no, the trauma, the indicative ligature marks and injuries are there to support death by hanging. Right. She has contusions of her neck muscles. She has a broken hyoid bone, the cricoid cartilage is kind of like Adam's apple. And there's ligature marks around her neck. And so she was hanged. No doubt. No question. The question is, did that cause her death or did she jump did she jump of her own free will or was she thrown or was she so i don't know if the question if the only question is was she dead when she was hanged or did she want to hang herself because she could have been alive i guess you're right like is there that motivation there Mm -hmm. so other interesting things found in the autopsy report include that she had head abrasions right because everybody hangs themselves has head abrasions. And she also had abrasions kind of scattered around along with contusions on the back of her arms and on her legs. The back of her arms is one of the things that they said to look for. Right. Directly stated in that study. Big red flag. Now, some of the abrasions could be related to her hanging and hitting some of the trees below and cacti. Mm-hmm. But the inside of the arms, inside the legs, is just odd. They also found duct tape residue on her legs as well. Right. Just one leg? Just one leg. Really weird. Really odd. And there was also some vertical bruising on her back. Which is another thing that was directly stated as a red flag. Right, that could be a sign of pushing. Ah. You know, they did further autopsies on the body. Mm-hmm. Which we're not able to pull those autopsy reports because they were privately done. From what we can tell, they did some fingernail scrapings at the time. Which were not done in the first autopsy. True. And they also found contusions to the head. So bruising of the head. So it had some kind of trauma to the head. Someone hit her with something. Right. And I believe there are four round contusions, which wouldn't make sense with any of the things she was interacting with, they were more straight. You know, it might have been railing or it might have been, what, but it's like the shape you know, does not correspond to any of the obviously involved elements. Now, one thing that I think is interesting is that in a reenactment that was done by a San Diego news channel, they dropped a hundred pound punching bag that was attached to the same bed made by the same bed maker out a window of the same height and observed how far the bed moved when 
100 pounds of force was dropped nine feet. Interestingly, in their reenactment, they found that the bed moved 35 inches, which is five times longer than the seven inches found at the scene. I mean, I find that odd because we, we know she, she was hanged. Right. Doubt. That force was there no matter what, no matter how she died, her willingness, anything. The pure physics of her body going over the railing and pulling the bed happened. So, I mean, how could it not move the same amount? Well, maybe if somebody was holding it back or sitting on it. Okay, that, that would change it. And, you know, on the autopsy report, they also found blood on her hands. That bothers me. Now, it was also found on, like, her inner thigh and foot and stuff that she was menstruating at the time. So that doesn't strike me as really an outlier. But on her hands? Again, just depends on how you look at it. Could it be menstrual blood? Yes. Could it be someone else's blood? Yes. yes. We, we don't know. To me, there's no clear path on this one. Is it a suicide? Is it a homicide? Yeah, there are red flags everywhere. And there's a lot of evidence supporting both sides of the case. Mm-hmm. You can rule out her boyfriend, right? Pretty much. He's on surveillance footage at the hospital where Max was um, on life support. What about Max's mom? Well, sh- would you like me to make this a little bit more Agatha Christie and weird? Please. Okay, so yeah, she's on surveillance footage, too, for most of the night, but... But... She has an identical twin sister. An evil twin? <laughs> I don't know. Did she Did she have a goatee? It's not a mirror twin. So there are some questions about that. And also people report seeing someone that fits the mother's description leaving the Shackney home. I really don't think it was her. But I found that she had a twin. Just delightful. <laughs> a great twist. Yeah. And so the only person there was the brother. Okay, and the brother is kind of a hot mess. Like, to me, every time I think about him, I don't know what to make of him. Because he's from Tennessee. So when you hear him speak, he's got this very charming drawl. And I am just instantly inclined to believe what he says. He seems genuinely distraught on the 911 call. One thing I did find interesting, and you and I are going to argue about this is during the call he says that he's doing chest compressions etc he's also screaming at her are you alive which i find very interesting they're like is she alive and he turns and goes are you alive (laughs) bizarre never heard that on a call before then he states that he's doing chest compressions and on the autopsy report says evidence of life-saving measures none okay you're not always going to have evidence especially if you're doing a crap job Okay. Your standard person, even if they've had CPR training, I've I've literally seen this done in the field, you know, just in the wilds. They don't it's not gonna click. If if they had that CPR training three years ago or even had that certification a year ago, they are not gonna know the amount of pressure that you have to put on a human chest to get appropriate CPR. It's a lot. Like when you're doing CPR for an extended period of time, you will wear out after a minute. Well and Another thing I find interesting is when you look up the really grim footage from the news helicopters, she's not in the supine position. She's actually in the recovery position. What's that? So that's like when you're on your side, one leg's crossed over the other, and your hand's crossed over. Why is it called the recovery position? It's something you put someone in after they've been having breathing difficulty or like drowning or like a seizure. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I just thought of that. And of course, there's no clear timestamp on whether or not emergency personnel had been 
out to the home by the time those photos were taken. But I just find it interesting that he's, you know, saying that he's doing chest compressions. And when we see the images of her body, she is not supine. I don't know. I don't think I don't think that that weighs it is a strong enough point to point to him. To me, the he is a tugboat captain. Right. And that she is tied up so intricately. Yes. Is um, more of a hmm. Right. The knot that was used to secure the long length of rope to the bed is actually the same knot you would use to dock a small boat. And she was not a small boat. She was not. There's no evidence that she was into horseback riding or sailing or anything where knots are kind of a thing. And, of course, he's got no alibi. He was there. We know he was there. And we know no one else was there. Right. Except uh, for maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe an evil Mama Shat and I. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the other thing that makes me really nervous about Adam is his search history on the computer that was in the main house where he was staying. Should have cleared your search history. Yeah. He searched things like bound Asian rape and anime bondage. And things of that nature. And Rebecca was Asian American and she was found bound up. And that really bothers me. Yeah. And while there was no evidence of sexual trauma on the autopsy, which there doesn't always have to be in a sexual case, I can't help but just throw the idea out there that this was some kind of like, at first, consensual, like BDSM kind of event that went wrong. And he freaked out and did a little bit of ad hoc staging. I don't know if it has to be consensual, though though the signs of a struggle aren't there. But she does have contusions on her arms and stuff. So maybe even that assault was part of the violence. And then it just escalated to homicide eventually. Yeah, so many ways it could go. And I can actually see him feeling justified in hurting her if he blames her for Max's death. Sure, it's a possibility. Thinking of the search history. Very sexualized scene. Search history bothers me with her being found naked and bound. And he wasn't just searching like BDSM or whatever, which is like, hey, if you're into it, whatever. He was specifically searching like Asian, bound, raped, tortured, like exactly what happened. The only other person home at this time was Rebecca. So there is some small possibility it could have possibly been her doing these searches, which would be really weird. It, no, I mean, you can you can be into that. You can be Asian and want to watch Asian BDSM porn. There's oh, nothing no, wrong with no, that. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. It just seems like a weird departure considering that the searches would have been done after she got that update on Max and was supposedly suicidal. Oh, so it was done after she was already maybe in this state of distress. Right. Like, it was late night stuff. Okay, that's that's odd. Yeah. Also, there, it discusses, you know, there were no other DNA on the rope. Well, if he cut her down, how is there no DNA on the rope? That bothers me. But then they're like, oh, well, we didn't test the whole rope. And I'm like, okay, then how can you, hmm, I don't know, Jacob. Like I said, there are a lot of things pointing that it could be a suicide. And a lot of these things fit in with an odd case of a hanging suicide. This is, no matter what the cause is... An outlier. It's an odd case. But there is some precedent there that it could just be a suicide. It would just be a very, very odd one. That's very true. And one thing that has to be said about this case is that no matter what happened, it's really sad. It is. Someone lost their life. 
And I can imagine what the families went through losing that six-year-old boy and her in such a short period of time in two very brutal ways. You know, we want to encourage anybody that's listening that if you know if you ever have these thoughts or feelings, reach out to someone. Right. Reach out to your physician, a suicide hotline, and, and get some help. Right, and the suicide hotline is great because you can call if you need to, but if you're not in a place where you can call, they have tech services available. So if you're in a public venue and you don't have a way to get away and go talk, you can text. Oh, that's great. It is. It's really thoughtful. Reach out. People care. Because as brutal as this case is, people do care on every side but what I find tragic is if this is like her expression of grief and her asking if someone can save her no one could so in one of the stories that we looked at today we talked about the idea that someone would be lonely enough or feel isolated enough that their only mode of expression is this very public act of self-abasement, this very public suicide. And the sadness in that story, the irony in that story, comes from people not even recognizing it after it's too late. They're not looking for it. They're looking past it. It's not in your normal context. But it's something that maybe we should be looking for a little more. Maybe we should be thinking a little more about the people in our lives and how they're doing. Is the idea that somebody could be dying right in front of you That's just a story. Yeah, that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.